Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 28th, 2023, an anniversary of some significance. But before we get to the anniversary, 60-year anniversary of something of, of great significance for American history, we need to go back to Jackie Robinson. It always need to go back, really, to Jackie Warren Robinson. We did a show earlier this year with Michael G. Long, who's back on the show. Uh, back then, it was uh, in the middle of uh, April. We were celebrating... Um, 42 today, Jackie Robinson and his legacy, of course, in, uh, uh, in April, on April 15th, uh, 1947. Uh, Jackie Robinson first played baseball for the Los Angeles Dodgers, which changed everything. Um, and as it happens, above all else, of course, it broke the color line. And it uh, well, of course, it wasn't uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers. It was the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, back then. Uh, it changed the history of race and race relations in this country. Uh, but much has happened since, including 60 years ago today, uh, the March on Washington, a quarter of a million people and a dream. Um, lots of work in the media, lots of celebration. The CBS are looking back on the March on Washington. Uh, there's an oral history in the Washington Post. Uh, many people claim it. The New York Times claim it all began in Harlem. But of course, uh, it all began with a man called Bayard Ruskin. Uh, and we are celebrating him with Michael Long, who, of course, wrote the book about uh, Jackie Robinson. And he's back with an NYU book on Bayard Ruskin a legacy of protest and politics. Uh, Mike, Michael Long is cornering the market in Bayard Rustin books. He has another one out, two out, maybe three as we speak. Uh, he's certainly a man who knows all about the great Bayard Rustin. So, uh, Mike, congratulations on the new book. Uh, tell me why Rustin for you is such an important figure. <laughs> I was attracted to Rustin for a couple different reasons. One is he brings together for me so many of my interests, socialism, uh, LGBTQ rights, pacifism, nonviolence, the black freedom movement. They're all wrapped together in Rustin's life. Now this year, right now, uh, I'm interested in him, especially because he was the architect of the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Uh, he was the person who planned that protest, that historic protest. In about eight short weeks, it takes mo many of us, if we get married, uh, more than a year to plan our weddings. But Rustin organized over 250,000 people to come to Washington and protest for civil rights on August 28th, 1963. And he did it in eight weeks. It's quite an achievement. But, I mean, he's more than just an organizer, isn't he? Tell me a little bit about his background and his unique place, and people often talk about unique places, it seems as if Bayard Rustin really did have a, a unique place for lots of reasons in the civil rights movement in America. Yeah, let me talk about his place in the civil rights movement. In 1956, Rustin was working for the War Resisters League 
And in New York City, it was a uh, fervent, fervently pacifist group. And they, along with some other civil rights leaders in New York City, uh, were concerned that the Montgomery bus boycott that Dr. King was leading uh, might turn violent. And so they asked Bayard to go to Montgomery and school uh, those folks in the principles of nonviolence and pacifism. So Reston traveled to Montgomery, to the Montgomery bus boycott, and eventually he meets Dr. King. And Reston was one of the most important people in schooling King in the principles of nonviolence and pacifism. When Reston showed up in Montgomery, uh, for example, there were armed guards. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it required a, a very brave man to, to go down there. What was his background? Where was he born? Where did he establish his his understanding, his bravery, and his relationship with Philip Randolph. Sure. Mark Preston was born on March 17th, 1912, uh, in Westchester, Pennsylvania, not too far from where I live. He yeah, you're in Hershey, by, Pennsylvania. Right. And he was reared by his grandparents. Uh, his grandmother probably was the biggest influence in his life. Her name was Jennifer Rustin, and, and she was, in her younger years, a Quaker. And she schooled him in the Quaker principles of nonviolence and pacifism and equal dignity and the unity of the human family. And he would, Rustin would often point to those principles as being the fuel that really drove him. Was, was this hard uh, as a young black man in America in the, the 20s and 30s and 40s, given the violence on the other, on the other side to accept the ideas of pacifism? I don't know if it was hard for Rustin, but I do know that it was pretty easy for him to use the principles of nonviolence in protesting civil rights, even when he was a youngster. Uh, he protested segregation at the movie theater by sitting in the whites-only section. So he often pulled from those principles to protest early on. Brave man. I mean, it, it, we, we can laugh at that now and admire him, but it took a, a very brave an unusual fellow to be able to do that. Yeah, let me tell you about how brave he was. In 1942, he was traveling on a bus in the South and he's heading to the back seat where African-Americans are supposed to sit. And a little white boy grabs his tie on the way back and his, the boy's mother hits her son's hand and says, don't ever touch an N-word. And mm. Rustin goes back to the back of the seat and then he decides that he's going to protest that. And he moves to the uh, whites-only section. And then the bus driver calls the local police officers. They come on the bus, Andrew, and they kick his ass, basically. They beat him. They punch him. They kick him. And he says in response, I'm a pacifist. There's no need to do all this. I'm not resisting. But they continue to beat him. And eventually, uh, they took him to jail. Yeah, and that was in 1942, 1942, 1942 yeah, I, uh, And of course, um, Rustin, alongside his nonviolence, his involvement in the civil rights movement, was also um, uh, a gay man. And how did that play in? And, and, and what's the history of his own sexuality and uh, his uh, willingness to talk about it? 
Yeah, really important question. So many of us wear our sexuality on the sleeve in the sense that we walk with our partner hand in hand, arm in arm. We kiss in public. Rustin wasn't like that. He considered his sexual orientation to be private. But if you knew Rustin, you knew he was gay. And that posed some problems for him in the civil rights movement in 1960, for example. Dr. King and Rustin and A. Philip Randolph were planning to march on the Democratic and Republican National Conventions. There's a member of Congress from Harlem named Adam Clayton Powell, and he doesn't want King to march on the Democratic National Convention. So he tells King through an intermediary, if you don't call off this march, I'm going to go to the media and tell them that you're having a gay affair with Byron Rustin. It wasn't true. <laughs> Rustin, and gay were, Rustin and King were not lovers, but King freaks out. He panics, thinking that this might... Uh, be fodder for those who are opponents of the civil rights movement. And so he cuts Rustin out of his inner circle in 1960. It's a brutal, discriminatory move. Uh, and it's shocking knowing that it comes from Dr. King. But Rustin was crushed at that move. Now, eventually, Dr. King brings him back and they work together closely in the 1963 March on Washington. I just finished a, a very large biography uh, of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who, of course, uh, his work at the FBI, a lot of it was spent snooping on, certainly MLK, but presumably Rustin. H how much did the authorities mm -hmm. know about Rustin? Was he identified as a troublemaker, as a gay man? Presumably they accused him of being a communist, too. Yeah, in the 19, late 1930s, Rustin was a member of the Young Communist League, and that uh, raised the attention of the FBI, and they tracked him, uh, and they were tracking him ever since. But in 1963, J. Edgar Hoover, who's upset about the 1963 March on Washington, so upset that he funnels damning information about Rustin to a conservative Dixiecrat senator named Strom Thurmond. Mm. And Thurmond tries to tank the march by going to the well of the Senate floor and calling Rustin a sex pervert. Rustin was arrested in 1953 for having sex with a man in public. He calls Rustin a sex pervert and he calls him a communist as well. And so this is Thurmond who's trying to undercut, undermine the march. It doesn't work. The civil rights leaders rally around Rustin, and believe it or not, the mainstream media do as well. And say they, so they run flattering portraits of Rustin at this time. But yeah, it's pretty dramatic. Hoover detested. Uh, yeah, the Hoover, civil of course, lived with a man, and most, most people believe now that he was gay, which only adds to the absurdity of the situation. We're going to take a break in a, in a couple of minutes, Mike. But before we get there, I, and I, after the break, I want to talk specifically about the 63 March on Washington and, and, and Rustin's role in that. Um, but before we get there, tell me a little bit more about his history up until 63. Uh, how, I mean, what did he do? What was his, how, how did he support himself? What kind of uh, friends and networks were he part of? Did he move away from communism? You said he joined the Communist Party in the late 30s, like many people, and presumably became disillusioned when the truth about Stalin and Stalinism came out. 
That's exactly right. And I won't repeat that point, but just to say that after he left the Young Communist League, he went to work on the March on Washington Freedom Movement. Believe it or not, this was in 1941. Yeah. Randolph was leading it. They were threatening to take 100,000 uh, black marchers to Washington, D.C. to desegregate the national defense industries. And Rustin worked on that with Randolph. Uh, after that, he goes to prison. Uh, when he served, when he becomes a conscientious objector during World War II, and he tries to desegregate the prison system as well. And then following that, he goes to work uh, on world peace for the Fellowship of Reconciliation. So from the 1950s on, he's working in the peace movement. He's uh, speaking against nuclear armaments. Uh, he's working with colonial, anti-colonial leaders in Africa. He's got this rich history to draw from. I mean, it's incredible. In was he? W w did he ever come uh, in the same circles as Baldwin? Did he ever become as? No. Did Did he ever? Did, did, was he part of the same circles as James Baldwin? In terms of occasionally, they crossed circles. They crossed. I mean, I'm circles. just thinking because of perhaps right. the, the the cultural element. Right. Uh, not so much, as far as I know. I'd love to dig around that a bit. Maybe that be a, you haven't written enough books on Ruskin. Uh, Mike. You'll have to do another one on that one. But what about right. this Philip Randolph? Was he the grown-up? Was he the, the elder statesman who took Ruskin under his wing? He was definitely Ruskin's mentor. He warned him of the communist movement. He brought him into the Black Freedom Movement. In the late 1930s and 1940s, he continued to school Rustin in the 50s. And when Dr. King sliced him out of his inner circle in 1960, it was Randolph who rallied around uh, Rustin. And together, they worked together on planning the early stages of the march. What, what was Randolph's relations with MLK? I mean... He was, of course, enormously controversial back then, and accused of all sorts of things, including being a communist. Was there were there ideological splits between yes. Ruskin and Randolph and MLK? Yes, especially at the beginning of the march, Ruskin and Randolph folded the civil rights movement for so, focusing so much on the desegregation of public facilities. Ruskin and Randolph wanted to push for full employment for Black Americans, for a massive training program, and for a national minimum wage of $2, which translates to about $19 today. So Randolph and Rustin were democratic socialists, and they were pushing for jobs and jobs with dignity in early 63, and King was pushing for desegregation. Rustin brings these different streams together and creates the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. I'm going to take a short break now, Mike, and afterwards I want to come back and talk specifically about the, the March on Washington, Ruskin's contribution to it, his role and his life after that. So take a short break. We are, uh, we want to remember uh, Liberties, uh, Quarterly Journal of Culture and Politics, which is our sponsor today. Uh, excellent new quarterly, lots of interesting writing in it. We're going to run a short ad for Liberties and then we'll be back with Michael Long, the author of Bayard Rustin, A Legacy of Protest and Politics. And we are talking today on the 60th anniversary, uh, August 28, 2023, the 60th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington. So we'll be back in two seconds.
Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out libertiesjournal.com for more. You can also subscribe. We are with Michael Long, uh, the Michael G. Long, the author of new book, Bayard Rustin, A Legacy of Protest and Politics. Not the only book. I think mean, he's got three or four books out about Rustin. So he knows his stuff. Uh, it's also the 60th anniversary today of the March on Washington. Remind us, Michael, uh, of what America, where America was in on August the 28th, uh, 1963, a very different kind of America from today. It was a very different kind of America. Uh, just before the march, there was horrific violence in Birmingham, Alabama. There was a local public safety commissioner named Paul Connor, and he had his shock troops sick their dogs and train their fire hoses on young student protesters. And the violent images of that act traveled around the world. And people uh, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, or in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or wherever uh, they lived, got to see police brutality up close. That was a key part of life in 1963 for Black Americans. So was underemployment, uh, low employment for Black Americans, and certainly not anywhere near equal pay. Those were problems as well. And then there was Jim Crow, uh, the system of laws and customs that were designed to segregate uh, white Americans from black Americans and to consign black Americans to second class citizenship. And so uh, they were refused, for example, food in restaurants. They were refused uh, entrance to white schools and entrance to uh, white juries, for example. And the list just goes on and on. And remind us of, of, of what the, the March on Washington was designed to do. Is it supposed to jog the president of the time, uh, alter public consciousness, or just bring a huge crowd together on the mall? Yeah, so on June 11th, 1963, President Kennedy gave his historic speech on civil rights. And he talked about the passage of a civil rights legislation. And... The march, in part, was designed to pressure Congress to pass what would become the 1964 Civil Rights Act, desegregating... Which was an LBJ Act, of course. Right, desegregating public accommodations. So that was a big part of the march. Another part of the march, which I mentioned earlier, was this call for economic justice, for a rise in the national minimum wage, and for jobs for all, for massive training. And then there were other calls as well, and one was for integrated education and the end to police brutality. So the organizers put together a list of 10 demands. These weren't requests. These, this wasn't your typical uh, traditional lobbying of going to Congress and meeting with a member of Congress behind closed doors and begging for legislation. Uh, this was a massive protest of 250,000 people. 70% uh, of the march were Black Americans, and they were demanding 
passage of legislation. They weren't politely requesting it. And so what's really interesting to me, Andrew, about this march is that Reston and others invited Congress to come to the march. They're flipping traditional lobbying on its head and about 100 show up and they're not given a chance to speak. They're not given a chance to appear before uh, public television and speak whatever they wanted to speak. They were invited to come and sit among the people and to keep their mouths shut and to listen. And when they're walking down the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to take their steps, the people surrounding them start yelling, pass the bill, pass the bill, pass the bill. It's this dramatic moment in U.S. history. And of course, uh, Randolph was uh, involved with the union, as, as Rustin was. Was this... Um... Was much of the organization done around American unions? Yes. Uh, what's really important about the march is that it was an example of coalition politics. And so Rustin brought together the Black Freedom Movement, civil rights leaders and civil rights activists, and the labor movement, Black labor and white labor, and faith communities, uh, white faith communities and Black communities, Black faith communities and students as well. So he brought together this mass coalition of people of different colors and and different ethnicities and different national backgrounds and so forth and so on. It was really, the march is a template for the coalitional politics that follow it in many of the social movements uh, that came after it. I mean, Bayard was clearly a remarkable organizer. The cover of your new book has him on the telephone. He probably spent a lot of his life on the telephone. Uh, One piece I found about him suggested that um, while his middle name was uh, Mr. March on Washington, there was no lonelier man in America. Was there a big distinction between his public and private life, his inner and outer life? Was this remarkable organizer also, this this supreme networker also incredibly lonely and isolated? Near the end of his life, uh, for the last 10 years of his life, he was with a partner. Uh, his name is Walter Nagel. He lives where he and Bayard used to live in the Chelsea section of New York City. And by all accounts, he was very happy with Walter. They would invite friends over. They would go shopping in Greenwich Village. They would listen to classical music and jazz music. I think by all indicators, he was pretty happy in his private life. I think even while they were organizing the march, it was a bit of a uh, ruckus and a rowdy time at nights. Uh, the SNCC volunteers, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee volunteers that would get together and go out and have fun when they weren't working. Uh, And I think Rustin brought uh, a lot of joy uh, to that march. I know that he used to stop, he used to stop organizing at that march headquarters and just break out in song. So I don't know if I'd call him the loneliest protester in America. I don't, I don't think I would. I don't think it's fair to who his personality was. He was colorful. He was vibrant. He also had charisma. We often talk about King having charisma. But at the end of the march, you can see Rustin's charisma come out. He comes out to lead the people in affirming the 10 demands of the march. And when he does this, he bursts out of Lincoln's shadows. And he takes control of the podium. And as he's leading the people, he thrusts his fist in the air. And this is the fist of solidarity that socialist workers used to use all the time. And Rustin's full personality is in full bloom. 
Americans tend to often think of politics in sporting terms. They're always looking for MVPs. Um, you, you, you know all about that in your work on Jackie Robinson. Um, the MVP, of course, of the March on Washington was Martin Luther King and his dream speech. In a sense, is the work you're doing and our reminder of the importance of Bayad Rustin to, to remind all Americans that it's the wrong way of thinking about these movements and that more people should be credited and we shouldn't idolize one person over everybody else? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's good reason why many of us reduce the March on Washington to King's Dream. I just heard that. I listened to the speech again today, and it still gives me chills. It's one of the most powerful marches of the 20th century in world history, I would say. It's absolutely stunning. And there's a good reason why we reduce the march to him, but it's unfair. It's unfair uh, to King's colleagues. It's unfair to Rustin. Rustin, if King it's was the MVP, King himself, I'm sure he would be slightly awkward, uncomfortable with it. Right, I think so. But if King was the MVP, Rustin really was the manager. He was the one who put all the pieces together, who put the lineup together, who allowed King to hit that grand slam. And it wasn't only Rustin. Rustin had a team of seasoned staff at the March headquarters and, and, uh, and over 200 volunteers who went in and out of those headquarters as well. And, and let me tell you that on the eve of the march, Hundreds of people gathered at Riverside Church in New York City and made 80,000 sandwiches for the marches the following day. That march had a lot of volunteers behind it. Looking back at the 60s, in particular in the civil rights movement, how important is the march on Washington? You've noted that it was bound up in, in LBJ's later civil rights legislation. Could we Could we conceive of civil rights movement of the 60s without the March on Washington? I don't think so. I think it's a singular historic event that in many ways uh, shows the civil rights movement in transition. And so this, the March on Washington is important because it is a form of protest, no, about, not, no doubt about it. But it's also an appeal to politics. And what Rustin does later in his life is he moves from protest to politics. He moves from streets to the quarters of power in terms of lobbying for economic justice for African-Americans. And so that's an important part of the March on Washington. But here's what else the march did. It created a template for future marchers. It really did. And so people who built marches on Washington after Rustin's looked at Rustin's march and tried to copy it in some ways. And so they copied the coalition that I spoke of earlier. They copied his coalition building, but they also sought to copy the masses that came to the march that day, 250,000, right? So Rustin had the choice of doing civil disobedience campaigns as part of the March on Washington. He decided not to. Civil disobedience is for the hardcore few. And while it does show power, it doesn't show the power of 250,000 people. When you get those people, you serve notice to the political leaders of the day, and they have to respond. And people who followed Rustin sought to do the same thing. Were a lot of the 250,000, were they bust in, so to speak, through churches, through labor unions? What, what was Rustin's relationship with the church, especially the black church? 
Yeah, well, I can tell you that 1,500 buses arrived in Washington that day. Many of them were organized through the headquarters office, and many of them were organized as well through churches and through uh, labor, labor unions. Rustin himself came out of a black church called the African Methodist Episcopal Church. It was a denomination, and he attended Bethel AME Church in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And what's interesting about Rustin's life, I think, is that it brings together these two faith strands, the Quaker faith strand, nonviolence and pacifism and human dignity and equality, but also the black church strand, which really has this liberationist strand, this strand that focuses on Moses leading the slaves out of Egypt and into the promised land. So Russell brings together these two themes into the civil rights movement. It's absolutely beautiful. And he's very close to a lot of the uh, black church leaders of the day, including, of course, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. As I said, uh, you become a bit of an expert, or you are perhaps one of America's leading experts on Rustin. Uh, you you remind me that there's a movie coming out later this year, maybe rival uh, uh, Oppenheimer and Barbie for movie of the year. You have another book that's just coming out, More Than a Dream, The Radical March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, uh, co-authored with Yahuru Williams. And you also had uh, last year uh, an animated book, Unstoppable, how Bayard Rustin organized the 1963 March on Washington. Uh, Mike, 60 years later, it's always too easy to, to say, oh, nothing much has changed and all the issues in 2023 are as, as they were in 1963. Uh, what can we still learn from Rustin? Uh, and... Um, how, how is America perhaps today different? If, if he came back, what wouldn't he recognize? What would he be surprised with? I think he would be disappointed by the national minimum wage. Uh, I think he would like to see us raise the national minimum wage by at least $10 so that people could live lives with dignity while uh, earning a minimum wage. I think he would be very disappointed in that. I don't think he would be surprised by the ongoing police brutality that people of color face on a daily basis. That wouldn't shock him at all. That was a theme at the March on Washington, and, uh, and that became a theme later in his life in 1964 when he went to the Harlem riots and dealt with police brutality. And then at the Watts riots in California in 65, when he dealt with police brutality again, that's been an ongoing theme. I think he would embrace Black Lives Matter and its fight against police brutality. I think he would also be disappointed by the ongoing de facto segregation of education. Sure that integrate, integration in education is a legal must, right? But we've we still experience segregation in education by geography, by where white people live and black people live. And so I think he'd be disappointed by that as well. Um, well, the list goes on. But can I say, too, that Rustin was always heartened by progress. And so I think it'd be he would also point out that we've come a long way since 1963. Um, there have been reforms in police brutality. Integrate, education is in some ways integrated. 
Uh, we have seen better jobs for African Americans along the way. Uh, no longer are water fountains segregated, no longer are schools segregated, and so forth. And so I think he would point out the progress. And like Jewish, John Lewis often said, I think Preston would also say that while we've come a long way, we still have a long ways to go. Do you think there's something uniquely American about him? Yeah, I think that we can see it in the march as well. Uh, there's no hidden reason why they chose to go to Washington. Uh, protest and protesting the federal government is a uniquely American thing to do. It's a beautiful, we have the right to petition our government peacefully. That's written into our very being. And Rustin, I think, took that more seriously than most of us ever do. There's no uh, hidden reason why they went to the Lincoln Memorial. There, Abraham Lincoln was in many ways the epitome mm. of the United States of America, bringing together the North and the South, and eventually fighting against slavery. Yeah, we even we did a show, I can't remember the name of the writer a few months ago, who argued that even whilst uh, black Americans were slaves, they still embraced the idea of the Constitution, uh, which is astonishing, really, given that it was a society that had legally enslaved them. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? And especially the Declaration of Independence and Jefferson's words about all people, all men are created equal. Uh, that was a, that was a point of hope. Uh, and a point should have, of actuality. Um, I mean, if next generation Bayard Rustins, they may end up in, in law school. I wonder whether it was good or bad that he didn't end up in a law school. If he'd have gone to one of the fancy law schools, his career would have been quite different or his career today would be entirely different. It seems to me that Rustin was built to be a protester. I think he just had it with him and it was part of his genetic material to resist. One of my favorite lines from Bayard Rustin is, I must resist. That's just who he was. And so while I think he found uh, that it was important to work with politicians and to enter the quarters of power and to lobby and to use the legal system, I think he also found that that was never sufficient for implementing the laws and policies uh, that were brought to us by politicians and courts. Well, Mike, that's going to be the title of your fifth or sixth book on Bayard. It'll be uh, I Must Resist. I think I'll <laughs> lead with that. And, and finally, what would he make of January 6th of Trump and what many see as the descent of the Republican Party into a barely disguised kind of racism today? Yeah, well, I think that he would see January 6th as racist in many ways. I don't think there's any doubt about that. There were people of color who participated that day. They were few and far between. The people who did participate, like the Proud Boys and others, had a virulently racist past. And I think Rustin, above all people, would be pointing that out about January 6th. And what about the Republican Party more broadly? Is there a Republican Party more broadly? <laughs> when it comes Lord to pacifism ask, and, and resisting, I mean, if 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 if, if Trump yeah. is re-elected, re and and this is my biggest concern actually about America, for for one reason or other, if if Trump is re-elected, there's likely to be significant violence, for better or worse. And I wonder what 
Rustin would make of, in terms of oh, yeah. his theory of nonviolence, uh, the re-election of Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, I think that Rustin would probably uh, fervently oppose the re-election of Donald. I mean, Trump. that goes without saying. Time, I mean, we—that's obvious, Mike. I but... think at the same. Yes, I think at the same time he would discourage violence. Uh, from Trump people and from those who oppose Trump. I think that's a very important point. Rustin never favored the use of violence in advancing civil rights, ever. He thought it created more violence. Violence begets violence in Rustin's mind. And so I think that when uh, BLM protests become violent because of those on the outlying uh, parts of their protests, he would be opposed to that, uh, just as the leaders are. He would he would denounce violence, just as he did in the 1964 Harlem uprising, at the 1965 Watts uprising. He was consistently opposed to the use of violence in advancing freedom for folks. At the same time, 